Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, it's not just about building a successful group practice, it's also about exiting a successful group practice. Isn't that right? We're continuing today, uh, season two, episode 15, in our mergers and acquisitions and exit strategy theme. And today we're gonna be discussing the risks that impact valuation. There are a lot of them. I boiled them down to a handful and these are all right in your wheelhouse. So if you wanna learn more about how risk impacts valuation in the sell side market, certainly if you're contemplating going to market this year, this is another episode that's all just for you. So sit back, grab your pad and pen, brew another cup of that wonderful meal of coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Once again, welcome everybody to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am Perrin Desports and I am your host. And today's episode is all about risk. When we start working with clients uh, in a sell-side advisory capacity, at least, uh, or even prepping them before they go to market, we try to really get underneath the hood and analyze what their business is all about. Of course, the client wants to know what do you think the business will value at? What do you think the transaction will close? And we usually give them a range based on a myriad of factors. Uh, there's obviously a lot that goes into influencing the valuation of a business from the perspective of the buy side. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, but I'm really going to dwell on the risk factors involved. And a lot of these you can control, or at a minimum, you can mitigate against some of those risks. So if you're contemplating going to market this year or next year, or potentially any time in the future, these are things you want to be thinking about long in advance. Um, because if you don't, they can adversely impact uh, either the deal structure or the valuation or all of the above. So we'll dig into to some of that in short order. First off, let's talk about valuation. And I get asked a lot these days, you know, the Fed's forecasting to, to raise rates multiple times. We've got inflation coming uh, last year was a tremendous year on, on M&A. We just had a podcast um, with Steve Mizrak and Brian Kaleo that talked a lot about that. We're going to have a couple of buy-side guys on the podcast coming up, which will be pretty cool interviews. Uh, so you'll learn more about what 2021 was, where we stand in 2022, and what the outlook is from, from multiple experts' lenses um, going forward. But when we talk about valuation, there are a handful of things um, uh, that, that do influence that in the market we find ourselves in presently and probably uh, through the balance of this calendar year. I mentioned the rising interest rate. You can't control that. Obviously, an, an increase in the interest rate increases the cost of borrowing. And we all know that private equity-backed groups uh, use a combination of their cash 
and borrowed money to get transactions done. So it's it it's it was reasonable to conclude that an increase in interest rates could have an adverse impact on valuations and what they're willing and able to pay. The other aspect of the buy side is that a lot of these private equity backed groups are still and private equity back or private equity funds, excuse me, are awash in cash. They have a lot of dry powder on the sidelines. So it could very well be that they start using less leverage to get transactions done if the multiples have to remain where they are due to the forces of supply and demand. So it, it's going to be an interesting year to see how it plays out because we obviously most of us have never been through this type of an inflationary cycle and, and interest rates of what's uh, forecasted to come in our entire working careers. You know, I mean, you have to go back to the 70s really um, to and the Carter years to really see uh, inflation uh, above where it's forecasted to be now. That's going to have an impact in our, our, our market. The other aspect of this, though, is supply and demand. And when you start talking about market-based valuation multiples, we talk about debt leverage and borrowing costs and all that other kind of stuff. It, some of this does come back to supply and demand. And when I say supply, I'm talking about the supply of solid businesses with good growth trajectories and, and established leadership in a built-out back-end service offering, administrative service offering. If you have built that, chances are you're going to attract uh, a handful of qualified buyers. And if you attract a handful of qualified buyers, then you're going to have a lot of interest in your business and partnering with you. And that can gin up the demand side of the curve. So it, it, we're not talking about just any plain vanilla garden variety solo type practice here in terms of valuation multiples. We're talking about things that would attract a number of qualified buyers. And if there are few of those opportunities in the marketplace, then it stands to reason that valuation multiples would, would stay hovering around where they are right now. I think that bodes well for all of our core clients, certainly. Um, and it's important to understand the, the timing of going to market, supply and demand and things like that, every bit as much as it is borrowing rates um, uh, and cash on the sidelines in terms of dry powder. So that's the macro look to things. Let's talk a little bit more about risk and risk factors as it relates to you and your business. So you hear us talk a good bit about how valuations uh, and, and group practices are truly valued. And the, the standard answer to that uh, is that they're valued as a, a relationship between cash flow and risk. So when we start talking about risk, who owns most of the risk and what is at risk? A buyer is going to, to want to buy your business for a number of different reasons. Um, but fundamentally, they're wanting to buy the business because they feel confident in the future cash flows of the business. And if they're confident in the future cash flows of the business, they can more easily determine a valuation to place on the business and a, a way to structure the deal in terms of getting the deal done. Okay, so confidence around uh, cash flow, present and future cash flows uh, mitigates some of the risk. On the other hand, you hear us talk about deal structures uh, as a as a blend, if you will, 
of cash and equity, uh, your equity rolled into the buying entity. Um, if there's more cash to you in the deal, that increases the risk factor on behalf of the buyer. Reasonable to conclude that valuation might be slightly less. On the other hand, if you're willing to roll more equity into their business, then they see that that you're a partner of theirs uh, and, and you're very interested, obviously, in growing um, that equity position uh, and it mitigates some of their risk. So deal structure definitely impacts uh, valuation directly based on the blend of cash and equity. More cash, reasonable to conclude slightly lower valuation, less cash, reasonable to conclude slightly higher valuation. The other aspect of this is you, your role, and how long you intend to stay on. So how instrumental are you in the business? Are you still working clinically? Are you, you know, four to five days a week? Are you one of the major producers uh, four to five days a week? Are you the full-time CEO and also in charge of business development? And you are instrumental in, uh, in, in keeping the business operating effectively, but also growing the footprint of the business, attracting more associates and things like that into the business. You're a primary catalyst for the future success of the business, obviously, in that context, if you're not working clinically. And, and I would say that those are really important roles. Um, is your desire to um, find a partner, transact your business, and then take on the second stage of your career and helping them continue to build it out? Or on the other hand, is your desire to maybe get more cash in terms of the transaction and uh, retire imminently? You know, and imminently could be one to two years or, or potentially even less. If you're walking away from the business on a relatively short timetable, um, it, it does shift a lot of the risk burden onto the buyer. And that's going to be reflected in, in the transaction value, and it could be reflected in the transaction structure as well. So these are things where before you go to market, you really want to think about your role in the business, how instrumental you are to the success of the business now and into the future, uh, and what your desires are after the liquidity event. Do you want to stay on indefinitely? Do you want to stay on for a a finite period of time, three to four years? Do you want to stay on for a relatively brief period of time, somewhere around a year to two years? Because that really does move the needle. Uh, and it could actually impact a number of buyers who are interested in the business. There are some who uh, will not uh, acquire a business if the seller is not willing to stay on board for a minimum of three to four years. Um, so that can be a hard no for them. Just understand that as you're getting ready to go to market, as you think about this from a personal nature. On the other hand, if you are just a, a, an administrative figurehead, you're not, you, you may fill in a couple of days clinically, but you know, that's, uh, you're not a primary catalyst in the clinical capacity. And you've got a CFO, a COO that run the day-to-day -day operations and, and your role is not as integral to the business. Then, then if you do decide to walk away sooner, that could have less adverse impact on the buyer and, and doesn't create the same level of risk for them. So we want to think through um, not just deal structure and what you want, but also your role and, and how long you intend to stay on. Um, I will tell you, we've negotiated deals with buyers where um, uh, the seller 
rolled a large amount into equity, 40% into the new company and did not stay on, but for a couple of weeks after the transaction closed. So that is a possibility, but the business has to be set up um, to be uh, less dependent or not dependent at all upon you if that's truly what you want. And if that's the case, you need to get way out ahead of that. All right. So food for thought, both on a personal nature as it relates to deal structure and, and the role that you play or the walk away that you're going to ask for. The next thing that impacts uh, valuation in terms of risk quotient is what I might call a unicorn business or one that has more what we call exotic clinical procedures and to a degree provider risks. So let, let's kind of bundle all this together um, and, and really talk it through here. So when I say a unicorn, probably most of you are thinking about a tech company that reaches a billion dollars in valuation than IPOs or something like that. Honestly, DeWalker and I aren't dealing with a lot of group dental practices that reflect that profile. So my idea of a unicorn is slightly different. When I think about a unicorn in our world, it's, it's more of a unique type of a group dental practice. It could have some type of specialized procedures like um, you know, airway management and sleep dentistry. It could have um, something like uh, you know, CAD-CAM-based procedures that would be CERAC-related or otherwise. Could be something like um, uh, IV sedation, uh, you know, or any, any of those type or any of the specialty procedures that are truly uh, unique and take a long time to learn how to provide that service, even for a qualified specialist. The more uh, that the business is based around that, uh, primarily based around that, um, is, is the more you have to be able to seal up all of the risk pieces on your end. So that could be like recruiting the right type of uh, clinician that can practice in that environment and that wants to learn those skills and is proficient in those skills. So you've got like the doctor recruiting piece solidified, you've got the doctor development piece solidified, and a lot of those specialty procedures also require some different level of support in the context of the staff, not just scheduling, but uh, dental assistant wise and things along those lines. So it really does impact the team as well. If you're going to build a business like that, or if you have built a business like that, and you're thinking about taking it to market, it can value extremely highly. But you want to be able you want your sell side representative like Polaris to be able to present that business to a wide variety of buyers. And the buyer is going to take a, a look at a business like that, that has exotic procedures or is, is, you know, very specialized in what it does. Most of the buyers are going to get a little bit squeamish about that. So you want to be able to say, look, this is a super successful business. It generates tremendous amounts of cash flow. We've proven that we can grow it, scale it. It's repeatable. Um, it attracts a large number of prospective patients. So there's demand there for the service. But for all the risk pieces that would be uh, team-oriented or clinician-oriented or doctor development-oriented um, and other risk uh, aspects, we've sealed all those up. So if you can if you can show how you've been able to mitigate the risk and create repeatability, it will attract more buyers, and usually more buyers will yield a higher valuation. 
The other piece that I mentioned or just touched on in this context beyond exotic procedures is what I would call provider risk. And provider risk might be something akin to the following. Um, let's say that you've got um, you know, a group practice and you've got uh, 10 clinicians working in the practice. And you, it, let's just do something extreme here. Let's take the 80-20 rule. Let's say that 80% of the revenue out of the business is being generated by 20% of the clinicians. Surely that would be an outrageous example, but I think you get where I'm going with this. If you've got two of the 10 clinicians that are doing 80% of the revenue, that means you've got provider risk. What happens to uh, what happens if one of those uh, clinicians gets struck by lightning or hit by a bus or has a health scare or you know suffers a tremor in their hand, um, loses depth perception in one of their eyes? You know, just all of that, anything that could take out one of those two key providers would have a dramatic impact on the revenue line of the business. So I think it's important to to look at your um, uh, providers, both in a general dentistry context, both from a hygiene and from a doctor standpoint, and look at the percentage of revenue that they're each producing, and then figure out ways to, to make the business be less dependent on a fewer number of people. So sizing up provider risk is something that you need to get out ahead of. And if that means you know, taking an extra year to go through a doctor development plan and really shore up some of the, the I don't want to say underperforming, but, you know, average performers, get them to a higher level. You need to allow time to do that. If your business is predominantly based on only a handful of people generating the revenue, that's a massive risk piece. And you're going to take a haircut on that. Um, the the same uh, could be said, not just provider um uh, productivity, but also the payer mix. Um, most businesses that we work with have a pretty, I'd say, healthy component of um, insurance reimbursement. I'd say that most of them have, you know, some level of fee for service full pay patients, um, but it's not a it's not a huge number. Um, if your business does have a lot of cash paying patients, full fee patients, um, then you, you want to, you want to be able to communicate that to the buy side, because one of the, the things that the buy, buyers are, are most, um, uh, sensitive to is a change in demand. Okay. So it's easier to forecast demand if you take a handful of different insurance, if you're in network with a handful of different insurances, but you don't have, you're not top heavy in any one particular insurance company, the chances of them being able to attract more patients into your practice through that network is probably really, really good. On the other hand, if yours is a business that attracts a lot of higher end fee for service patients, you have to be able to, to validate the marketing plan that continues to bring in those full fee patients. It can't just be left a chance in, in that respect. On the other end of the payer mix scale is government payer, Medicaid. And I will tell you that there are a lot of buyers that shy away from Medicaid outright or want less than about five to 10% of the overall revenue mix to be government payer due to the compliance aspects uh, along the way, uh, due to the, 
the lag in payment time. And, and obviously it's at a lower fee too. There are a lot of people that, that, you know, take a, a small amount of Medicaid more as, as like a, a goodwill type of a service for the community. And, and I get that, but if you've got a larger percentage of Medicaid as your overall payer mix, then you have to have the systems and processes that deal with compliance and scheduling and everything else that goes along the way to show that Medicaid uh, is a very viable part of your business and that the risks have been mitigated. So just like we talk about provider risks, it's equal to, to say, take a look at your payer mix profile and understand the inherent risk in some of that or lack of risk. You know, if it's if 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 it's equally dispersed across the bell curve, um, then you're you're probably okay. But if you're more concentrated with one insurance company, or more heavily tilted toward fee for service, or more heavily tilted towards government payer, that's going to be something you need to uh, to have the the risk profile mitigated and have a talking point around that um, uh, when it comes time to go to market. The last piece. I'm going to discuss deals more with our specialists. And there are a lot of specialists out there. Uh, and I would say probably most of our specialty clients that have, that are still relying on referrals from uh, typically from general dentists uh, into their business for the specialty services. Um, you see at an enterprise level, a lot of these specialty groups going more direct uh, to consumer in their marketing efforts and relying less and less on a referral-based network. Unless it's a multi-specialty group, that's a little bit of a different context. But for your pure play specialists and specialty groups, um, uh, the enterprise ones focus a lot on marketing. The emerging ones that we work with still have a healthy amount uh, in, in terms of referrals. So there's a word if you're a special if you're running a specialty group there's a phrase you want to get really familiar with and that's called concentration risk so concentration risk is um sort of like the 80 20 rule again you want to look at all of your referring general dentists um and you want to look at them in two contexts one is the number of individual patients that they referred to you as a percentage of your total patient volume. All right, so that's that's unit volume, essentially. The number of patients as a percentage of the total patient volume. The second way you wanna look at those uh, referral sources are as a, uh, or is as a percentage of revenue of your total revenue. So there's unit volume, that's the individual patients, and then there's the amount of treatment that you performed on those individual patients that makes up the revenue that came from general dentist number one, for example. And you wanna take a look at your entire referral network to understand concentration risk. And, and here's what it comes down to, if, you have a couple of primary referral sources, meaning it might not be 80-20, but it, it could be that you got, you know, four or five general dentistry groups that make up 40 to 50% of your total revenue or total patient volume in your practice. 
the way you want to think about this is what would happen if an enterprise level DSO landed in my backyard and acquired one of my primary referral sources? What would happen to those referrals? Now, we all know uh, that a, a group can't mandate referrals within the group, um, but it tends to work out that way. Okay. I mean, even if, if it's not mandated, you know, we all know what happens to referrals after a general dentistry practice gets acquired by a group. They tend to go away. Right. So, again, if we're thinking about the risk factors in a specialty group and we think about it from a concentration risk standpoint, and you run your referral report for all of 2021, and it's got all the referring practices down the left hand side of the page. And then it says the number of patients that Dr. John Smith referred to you and out of those uh, patients that he referred to you, the total revenue attributed to those patients that he referred to you. And you take the percentage of number of patients over your total patient volume and you take the total revenue from Dr. John Smith as a percentage of your total revenue. Now you start to understand what could happen literally overnight. You really don't want to get the letter in the mail that says, hey, great news, Dr. John Jones. I sold my practice to XYZ DSO, and I'm now part of the, the XYZ DSO network. That may be great news for that seller, but it ain't going to be great news for you. So if you are a specialty group, you want to understand concentration risk completely and now hedge against that. And really, the, the ways to hedge against that are with a direct-to-consumer approach in your marketing campaign, and that's a totally different podcast episode, but uh, going more direct-to-consumer when and where you can, and obviously further developing your referral network to increase referrals from maybe some of your lesser sources when and where possible. These are things that, again, when you go to market, you got to show that you've mitigated the risks and that this is a really consistent practice that has fewer risk uh, threats, if you will, to the, the inherent viability and the health of the practice going forward. And if you can do that, you'll uh, probably be able to command a much higher valuation as well. So I hope this is helpful. Uh, we talk about risk in a lot of different uh, contexts, um, but certainly, you know, the the to sort of hit the highlights again, it's deal structure and walk away is one of them. Uh, it's what I call a unicorn type of a business or exotic clinical procedures and the provider risks that are all kind of bundled together. It's payer mix um, uh, and payer profile and then concentration risk from a, a specialty context. And if you, once again, if you can work through all of that, understand it inherently and really hedge against it, this your your business will value much more highly because there'll be less risk to the buyer and that'll reflect better on you. So hopefully that uh, um, is educational and to a degree enlightening. Um, and if you do have any questions as it relates to any of these topics, obviously you can feel free to send me a, uh, an email directly at parent at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show.
Once again, thanks everybody for joining me on the show today. And before we wrap up, I, I want to take a, a quick minute to uh, announce a new addition to our team. Miss Riley Hamblin uh, has joined Polaris as a graphic designer and presentation specialist. So many of you in our network um, really give us very nice compliments on our, our content, our presentation. The podcast is part of that, but also a lot of what we present in terms of webinars or from the stage or the master classes or things like that. Um, DeWalker and I uh, and the team overall work really hard on making our content impactful. One of the areas where we probably come up short is what I would call um, uh, aesthetics, <laughs> which is the way it all looks and the way it all lands. And Riley is a pro at that. Um, she has done a lot of great graphical work, presentation work, um, uh, uh, work for the web in terms of uh, uh, downloads and things like that um, at, at a prior company here in Charlotte. And I think she's going to be a great addition to our team. We're really fortunate to have her. And I think she'll take a lot of the, the visual presentation of what we do, how we communicate it, um, you know, in hopes of increasing the impact of it. Uh, and y'all will all see the, the outgrowth of that. The other thing is that we want to do, we want to start to do more um, uh, sort of creative work, for lack of a better term, um, for our clients, especially our consulting and our associate equity type clients. Uh, and I think Riley is going to be able to, to help us develop some things that'll that'll help our clients make an impact in their local marketplace um, and, and really have a, a more professional looking offering as it relates to recruiting or um, business development uh, and things along those lines. So, you know, her her role is going to be dual facing. It'll be uh, promoting Polaris. Certainly that's what we hired her to do. We're paying her salary, but it will also be to make an impact on, on our clients uh, who work with us and, and how we can help them run better businesses and uh, get more um, uh, bang for the buck out there for, for what the uh, our clients are trying to build. So we're excited about having her on board. And you'll start to see some of the, the impact of uh, what she does, who she is. And, and um, I think it's going to be great as we roll through 2022. So today was a lot of fun for me. I hope it was for you. And I obviously hope you, you get a lot out of the podcast. I really appreciate the nice compliments we get in text and email and ratings and everything like that. It, it really does help. So if you, if you wouldn't mind taking a quick second and giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts, um, it, uh, it, would be, it would mean a lot to me and the Walker, obviously. Uh, and if you've got questions, like I said before, feel free to submit them directly to me, Karen at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. I'll respond to them or maybe read and answer them on the air. You can always find more about us on our website at www.polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.